I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. You know how this story started. A New Year's Eve party at Nicolas Cage's house in late 1999. The perfect cover for someone to run off with Cage's copies of Action Comics No. 1 and Detective Comics No. 27, two of the most valuable comics in existence. A theft that would ultimately have value in the millions. It was the Stuart Isabella Gardner heist of the comic book world. That's the infamous Boston theft of priceless artworks back in 1990. You can probably find a lot of podcasts about it. You know what would be strange, though? If you took a famous art heist, like the Gardner Museum or the Mona Lisa theft, and somehow found that someone, somewhere, had done something almost exactly like the robbery, right down to the modus operandi, and did it just weeks before the more well-known heist, like it was some kind of criminal dress rehearsal, And the parallels were so eerie, so puzzling, that you'd almost have to think the two had to be related. Example, what if someone told you that just before someone stole Nicolas Cage's copy of Action No. 1 from his Bel Air home, someone took another copy of Action No. 1 from the home of another collector in Connecticut and did it just after the person had a party with dozens of guests at their palatial residence that was known to have lax security measures, and that there were no shortage of suspects from his house staff to his guests to his two house sitters. How could two copies of the same priceless comic be stolen thousands of miles apart at practically the same time? The only two recorded times anyone has ever been audacious and brazen enough to steal Superman's first appearance. I know, I'm asking a lot of rhetorical questions, and what I'm about to tell you isn't exactly like the Cage case. For one thing, it took place on the East Coast. 
For another, the collector wasn't a famous millionaire. He's a famous billionaire. For iHeartRadio, this is Stealing Superman. I'm your host, Dana Schwartz, and this is Episode 3, The Collector. Drive about an hour northeast of New York City and you'll find yourself in Westport, Connecticut, a bedroom community for city workers looking for a little quiet. It's safe, peaceful, friendly, and home to a lot of wealth. Up until his death in 2008, you might have caught sight of the actor Paul Newman, who was a resident for decades. Martha Stewart used to live here too. This is where a woman named Anne found herself in late 1999. Anne was a student at the time, in her early 20s, and dating a man named Jeff. Jeff taught tennis at the local recreation center. And, like most couples in early adulthood, money was a little tight. Then Jeff heard about an opportunity. Someone in the area needed a house sitter. And maybe there could be a trade. Tennis lessons in exchange for free rent. Yeah, Jeff is always open and tells things and looking for combinations or something. And said, hey, I'm looking for someone that's there during the week to watch his house, I guess. And that's how we got to live in his house. That's Anne. And the house she's referring to belonged to one of Westport's wealthy residents. Anne and Jeff were intrigued by the idea of becoming house sitters. But a better term may have been mansion sitters. The owner, who had invited Anne and Jeff to house sit, worked in the finance world and knew how to navigate it. So much so that later on, he'd take on ownership of a professional sports team. Let's talk about his vacation home. There was a tennis court, eight bathrooms, stone walls, a gate. It was a palace fit for a king, and he needed someone to watch it while he was off making gobs of money. Well, you know where I'm from, I don't know that it was for him, yes. Their main residence was in Manhattan, and then they would come on the weekends with the family, mainly just the kids and him, and spend the weekends there or vacation there, yes. It's a mansion. So it's a huge house. We didn't even live in the main house. We lived in a side house, a separate house. You imagine like a, a castle looking like it was all made out of stone house. And then their kitchen would connect through like a walkway to the house, to what we had as a house, into like a little living area with a kitchen. And then upstairs for us was our bedroom. We'll be respectful of his privacy and call him The Collector. The Collector's home in Westport was cavernous and reportedly filled with memorabilia of all kinds, from sports cards and jerseys to autographs to comic books. Especially comic books. The Collector had grown up idolizing Superman and Batman, their adventures, their code of honor, their exemplar modern mythology. 
When he was just a kid and worked at the local pharmacy, he was paid in Superman comics, a weird way of his employer skirting child labor laws. But the collector didn't mind. It instilled in him a lifelong love of the character. He had a lot of comics, but only two were kept under wraps, Action Number 1 and Batman Number 1. That comic isn't actually the first appearance of The Dark Knight, but it's his first solo title, and it's perhaps the third most desirable comic in the world. It's the first time anyone ever glimpsed the Joker and Catwoman. The Collector had just moved the comics from his home in Manhattan over the summer. Both of those comics were kept in protective cases to ward off fingerprints, dust, body oil, anything that could corrupt their excellent condition. The action number one was valued around $200,000, while the Batman could fetch $100,000. If it were a stack of money, it would take up an entire duffel bag. But these comics were just a quarter inch thick at most. And like Cage, the collector had bought them from dealer Stephen Fischler at Metropolis Collectibles. Here's Stephen. I'm going to go through my memory banks. Now you're mentioning it. I remember like going, you got to be kidding, not again. What was interesting about this is that Fischler sold both copies, one to the collector and one to Cage, around the same time, and both were virtually in the same very fine condition. The books were like doppelgangers. Well, I had sold it to him for 150000 and in fact, I sold two copies within 30 days of each other for 150000 each, and they were very similar to each other. So in 96, I had two copies and they sold for exactly the same price, very close together, time-wise. If the collector was a little cavalier about the other collectibles in his home, he was downright militant about these two comics. He kept both in a century safe, model 1610. It's about the size of a dorm room refrigerator with a numbered keypad. This isn't national security level stuff, but it should dissuade most people from trying to get inside. Jeff and Anne were not collectors. They were sort of, well, oblivious to all of it. No, not really. I mean, at that time, how old was I? I have no, we were just like dumb kids. We were happy where we were and happy that we could live there for free and just no, not even researched it or even like, oh, how much are they worth or whatever. Never thought of that. Oh, comic books. Okay. Frame them and put them up or I don't know. Well, framing comics hadn't turned out too well for Cage. <gasps> but anyway, besides, Jeff and Anne weren't usually in the house. They were staying in a guest area that was connected to the house, but relatively separate. This was a pretty good arrangement. The collector allowed them to live there to keep an eye on things, make it seem like the house was inhabited. On weekends, the collector would come in from the city by himself or with his family, and then off he'd go. It was really an ideal situation, except, well, except for a couple things, like the fact Anne and Jeff weren't the only people there. And to know that there are too many people around, I don't know. I mean, at one point, Jeff even thought 
a driver comes in. We didn't know when someone would come, someone would drop off someone, someone. These people are just coming and going. They're always different people and they don't introduce themselves. They just come in and they're just all of a sudden stand right next to you and you're in their house. Despite his memorabilia and his other possessions, the collector didn't seem overly concerned with security. Maybe it was the presence of Jeff and Anne, two human guard dogs who might ward off any theft by their mere presence alone. But even patrol officers in the area would notice how the collector didn't seem to mind leaving doors unlocked and giving people plenty of access. Hey, it's Westport. The property crime rate is almost half the national average. The collector had a housekeeper named Linda who came in multiple times a week to clean. Linda had been working for the collector for years and was trusted implicitly. Well, by the collector, anyway. When she was there, we stayed on our side. When I was even there, I went to school, Jeff went to work, so I don't know. I mean, when she was there, I would say hi, and that was all. Then there was Rodney, the collector's driver. Rodney was around even when his boss wasn't, dropping things off and picking them up. He had a key to the house, just like Linda did. Yes. There were multiple drivers. They would pick up different cars, drop off different cars, just come and hang out in the house, I guess. So did a guy named Joe, a contractor. The collector had some home improvement projects going on, so Jeff and Ann would sometimes see Joe and his workers around. And so things went on like this for a few months. Jeff and Ann living beyond their means, but in kind of a cool way. And then, because there's always and, and then, Ann opened a drawer one day to find something very unusual. A few weeks prior, Jeff had given her a gift, which she kept in a jewelry box inside of the dresser in her bedroom. As she reached for it, she realized something was wrong. Jeff had given me some diamond earrings, and those diamond earrings, the piece on the back of the stud would screw on. So when I was putting them on, they just clicked in, and I was like, no, something's wrong. There was something different about the diamond gold earrings. Anne couldn't quite put her finger on it until she put her finger on it. So I looked at them, and I could tell that there weren't screw-ons and I was like those are not my earrings and then I looked closer they didn't have any stamp you know like how they have a stamp in it that they're real and nothing and then I called him and I said something doesn't seem right someone had gotten into Anne's drawer and replaced the earrings with fakes that would mean someone had been looking in the drawer found them and made the very deliberate choice of returning with a fake pair to try to keep the theft undetected. It was planned. I mean, you can say that. Someone looked already through everything beforehand to see what we have. Anne immediately told the collector about what had happened. After all, a theft had taken place in his home. But his reaction seemed a bit muted. He was like, well, we'll take a look at it. I mean, to him, that's minor, I'm sure. So, And then I think they're just talk, Jeff and him to locate where it was. I mean, I don't know. It was strange to me at that time, and now it's even stranger because who comes in our room and steals that tiny of something? 
knowing that I'm wearing, I have. About two weeks after Anne's earrings disappeared, the collector came back to the house for the weekend. And that's when it was his turn to notice something was very amiss. The collector's safe was kept in a bedroom closet. At the time, it contained the comics, about $500 in cash, and an expensive Cartier watch. He noticed someone had tossed some clothes on top of the safe. When he pulled the clothes away, he saw that the safe had clearly been pried open. There was no elegant safe cracking here. It was brute force. And when he opened the bent, twisted door, he found his Cartier watch. But the $500 was gone. And so was the action number one. And so was the Batman number one. The Westport police would soon be on the case. But unlike in Los Angeles, there was no dedicated art detective. Nor was Westport some massive metropolis. If the collector and Cage were ever to get their comics back, they'd need some kind of specialist. Do you mean the forensic comicologist? When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The action number ones taken from the homes of the collector and Cage are, by far, the two most significant comic book heists in the history of the hobby. They're practically mirror images of one another, in much the same way Bizarro is a mirror image of Superman, only a little off, a little different. You know Bizarro, he's Superman's opposite, wielder of broken syntax and calling himself Kent Clark. Instead of an S on his chest, there's a B, or later a reverse S. There was an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry met a bizarro version of his friends. The collector's heist was kind of like that, a bizarro theft. Or maybe Cage's was the bizarro version. But there was one major component both crimes had in common. Police departments are usually ill-equipped to investigate these sort of thefts. Remember, there are hardly even a handful of art thief detectives in the world, let alone comic book detectives. But there is one person, maybe the only one in the world, who is uniquely qualified to talk about these kinds of heists. My name is Jamie Newbold. live in San Diego all my life. I own Southern California Comics. It's a business that's been in effect now since the late 90s. Several years before that, I retired from the San Diego Police Department. I had done 20 years there. Jamie, by the way, is talking to us just after hip surgery. I'm waiting for this guy to come pull my staples. It's unusual to find a comic book store owner and collector who also happened to be a uniformed police officer. 
It's kind of a gene splicing of law enforcement knowledge and the insider perspective you can only get when you've grown up reading comics. And while Cage and The Collector may have been shocked that someone came for their books, Jamie has seen it before. In fact, he worked a stolen comics case back when he was a cop. The books were all Captain America comics, which debuted before the U.S. entered World War II. The very first appearance of the patriotic hero who was injected with super steroids, sorry, super soldier serum, and fought for the American way. If you've got the first issue in your attic or around the house, try to dust it off. It's worth over $3 million in excellent condition. This gentleman, whose name is Ray, lived in the beach area, San Diego, and his job takes him out of town frequently, he leaves his home, no one's there. He had a collection of Golden Age Captain Americas he was quite proud of, and they were missing one day. Now, he can't explain who or how. He just knows they were gone. I was detailed to take the police report, and I'm like the only comic book guy on the department at the time. So I was able to give him some feelers on what I would do if I were him. Fortunately, everything fell into place. I told him, I will get you into con if you don't have a badge for Comic-Con. Now, this was years ago when you could still get badges just off the street. Jamie is referring to the San Diego Comic-Con, the apex of comic book gatherings, and a place where it might be easier to pass along a stolen comic. Jamie had a feeling the thief might head there to sell his Captain Americas. And we'll, uh, you go ahead and look around for those comics. I'll be set up there. I always have a booth at Con. And if you're lucky enough and maybe somebody actually has your books and is selling them, Come get me, we'll get security, and we'll go over and lock it down. Well, that's exactly what happened. So the gentleman that had the books was another one of these locals, like a Craigslist guy. He would buy and sell through Craigslist. He lived in a hangar at one of the local private county airfields, so it was a really odd location. So the story was that he had someone offered to sell him some books through Craigslist, and he bought them, and the guy came out to the airfield and sold them to him. This man had no idea that he was dealing with stolen property, but I sensed that he should have. So when we did, in fact, lock the booth down, security came, it led not only to the recovery of all of these expensive Golden Age Captain Americas, but it led to the suspect. The dealer had no choice but to give it up to the police to stay out of trouble. And here's something important to note. Possessing stolen property isn't a crime as long as you didn't steal it or admit you knew it was stolen. They hit you hard on that when it's time to decide if you're a thief or an innocent. If this old man had tripped up and said something about he knew they were stolen but he didn't think he'd get caught, then he would have been guilty. But he didn't know, or says he doesn't know. And there's no way to prove it unless the suspect confessed. But that's low-hanging fruit at that point. Once you have the suspect, the law enforcement's less interested in the guy that fenced the items. So that's a problem. Even if your stuff is recovered and you want justice, that's two different things. Getting them is one thing. Justice is a complete other bugaboo. It's why art theft can be so lucrative and so low-risk. Imagine swiping a comic, then trying to sell it, then being caught. If you're smart, all you'd have to say is that a third party sold it to you, 
And gee, you didn't know it was a hot item. Sorry, officer. Combine that with the skepticism facing comic collectors and you have the recipe for a near-perfect crime. It's no wonder thieves were tempted by the collector's comics and cages. When it comes to collectors or comic shops having their books stolen, Jamie doesn't think the law is acting as much of a deterrent. In fact, his shop has been broken into more than once. And even after handing over video and other evidence to the district attorney, it's difficult for them to act. So he came up with another solution, one that probably would have solved Cage's problem. Oh yeah, in our store, we have a lot of expensive stuff. Now that I've said that, my listeners are wondering if I'm an idiot. No, the answer is, if you come into the shop, all you're gonna see are Xerox printouts. The good stuff is stored elsewhere. So we lock them in glass cases for appearance, but they're nothing more than pieces of paper with a picture on them. Cage could have done something in his own home. Even to protect against ultraviolet light, he could have just made copies and framed them. They'd give him the same thrill. He knew he owned them. He didn't have to showcase them. But that's just difference between what he's thinking and what I'm thinking. But in both the collector's case and Cage's, the thief or thieves weren't likely strangers. If he kept shifting that stuff around, then those things were somewhere else in that room. Somebody knew it. Well, that would take a repeat. It had to be somebody who had been there either more than once and realized there were more than these books on the wall, and that meant the rest of them were someplace else, or somebody who he had taken a tour of the room and seen other stuff, which would make it more grisly for Nick Cage, because then it was somebody worthy of his time and friendship to do that, only be ripped off. These are the things, though, that a private investigator who would have brought pain to Nicholas because he would have made him think deeply about people close to him until the detective finally found a chink in the armor. This is just the way it works. I don't know if Cage, if he hadn't hired a private investigator, maybe he was satisfied with the insurance, or maybe he just didn't want anyone digging into his life including people looking for the thieves, because maybe he knew them in a different way. In fact, he thinks it's far easier to traffic in stolen books than you'd ever think possible. Problem is encouraged by the fact that comics are so liquid. They can be stolen and sold to the next door down the block. The back issue market is rife with people who are force-feeding the public stolen books. Dealers have a cage problem every time they put books out for sale, especially at comic conventions. So that if you are a pair of thieves and there's one person working at a booth, and all those booths have wall displays, one of the two will ask the person in the booth to turn around and get a price tag off that book at the top for him because he can't see it from where he's standing. In that moment, either that person is stealing or another person next to him who is in that person's blind spot as well is stealing. This happens all the time. The other tell is at Comic-Con, for instance, they hand out these massive tote bags and they hang on straps over your shoulder so that the opening of the bag is about waist height. And they'll use the same dodge. They'll get your attention and then they'll have you distracted, and then they'll simply scoop stuff off your table into one of those conveniently placed bags and move on their way. The stores, the problems, theft, graded books, 
are the choice plum because the public is willing to pay more for a graded book, knowing that they'll pay close to retail, the thieves target those. Raw comics are a harder sale because so many stores don't know how to grade. They don't know what the books are worth and they're reluctant to pay any real money. And it's unbelievable, it's, it's systemic. And I can't explain the organization behind this, but there certainly seems to be some sort of common knowledge, if not a greater connection. And these are all problems. These are the tells, the tells are the locations. The hands are the demon's tools and the inability for comic book stores to play policemen or to be trained to do this is inevitable. We're not supposed to be cops, we're just retailers. But there's still a difference between unloading a valuable comic and getting someone interested in an action number one. And it's possible that both the collector and cage thieves realized just how hard it was going to be only after they had the goods. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The collector was in a big hurry to get back to New York. He brought the safe downstairs and left it in the kitchen. It was upsetting, but he really didn't have the time to deal with it. Not right then. Jeff and Anne didn't even know the collector had a safe. And I had no idea. He was a collector. He had things like that. It was obvious that whoever had taken the earrings had also helped themselves to the comics. But the party had muddied the waters. Had it been a guest? Or had one of the collector's many helpers used the party as a cover to confuse detectives? There were no signs of forced entry, so whoever the culprit was, they didn't need to break a window or shimmy a door lock to get access. And that narrowed things down. A few days later, in November 1999, the collector finally phoned the Westport Police Department and explained what had happened, that his two rare comics had been stolen. Oh, and Anne's earrings too. But even though Anne's property had been swiped, she and Jeff were in an awkward position. They were the full-time occupants of the property, with access to the entire house. So detectives sympathized with Anne's missing jewelry, but they also had to question both of them. The problem was, the collector had shown Jeff and Anne the bedroom, which they never usually went into, to explain what had happened. This turned out to be slightly unsettling for Anne. 
I just remember it showed us everything, and then in the end, it was like, well, police is going to come and check everything, and then Jeff and I were like, well, we touched everything, and I think that was another reason why we were not saying investigated, but asked as well. Yes, they talked to me, and then I remember Jeff wasn't there, so they just talked to me, and they told me they found fingerprints. They found my fingerprints up there, and then I had to just tell them, well, yeah, because we all went up to look at it and then yeah you open things and you lean against stuff I was like I've never seen this room before I've never was up there before detectives took away the century safe model 1610 and photographed the closet area then they put out a kind of ACB or all comics bulletin asking comic shops in the area to be on the lookout for the missing titles and then they began looking more closely at the cast of the collector's vacation home. That left Linda the housekeeper, Rodney the driver, and Joe the contractor. Each had unsupervised access to the home, and in some cases, more than just access. It's not fair to call them suspects. Let's call them interviewees. The first was Linda, Linda had been with the collector for about a year and was introduced through a relative of hers. The collector told police that Linda had access to his valuables. And in all the time she'd been working for him, nothing had ever come up missing. Was she going to snap one day and pry open a safe? It seemed unlikely, although Anne had her doubts. I always, like we were going through it and at that time I said it was the housekeeper or she was involved in it. I don't know. I didn't like her demeanor. I didn't like, I don't know. But as a 19-year-old, you can, whatever. And then I have no idea. I mean, I think it was an inside job. They also spoke to Joe, the contractor. Joe was an interesting person. A person of interest, one could say. While he was also a trusted member of the collector's circle, having done work at several of the collector's properties for several years, Joe sometimes brought along helpers. There was a guy named Ed. Ed was once left alone in the house for several hours. But Joe insisted Ed was a family friend, not of the collector's, but of Joe's family. And Ed was trustworthy. Probably knew his way around a crowbar, but that's neither here nor there. Joe insisted he had no idea the collector even had a safe, let alone what was inside of it. Detectives also spoke to Rodney, the collector's driver. Rodney was, well, special. He had been working for the collector for about three years, constantly coming and going from the home. Like the others, he had house keys. But what made Rodney different was that he had the combination to the safe in the upstairs bedroom. The collector had given it to him so Rodney could get his passport for him once. This was when the safe was in the collector's other home. But the safe had been opened with force, not a combination. If Rodney was the culprit, it's possible the combination had revealed to him the valuables inside, but didn't leave him any options. If he took anything, and the collector hadn't given the combination to anyone else, that's one giant, flapping red flag. If Rodney pried it open, that would certainly widen the pool of suspects. 
Rodney, though, didn't seem like he had much to hide. He openly admitted to having the combination to the safe. He also said he sometimes brought along his stepson or a friend to help him with errands. But no, he had no idea who had taken the comics. After a round of interviews, detectives didn't have much more than archetypes to go on. The maid, the driver, the contractor. It was like a bizarro game of Clue. The driver in the bedroom with the pry bar and the action number one. What made the case even more complicated was that the collector had held a birthday party that fall with roughly 120 friends and family attending. There were caterers and tents and food and drinks, even a DJ. So for me, I think Jeff recalls it differently, but I thought there was a huge party and he had invited us too. We were around, but it was all outside and people would just come in, I guess, to go to the bathroom. But there were servers there. I believe there was a band too, and it was under a big tent in the backyard. And after that, I remember that he had said someone broke into the safe, and I thought it must have happened at the party. Rodney did have one thing to add during his talk with police. He told them that some of the workers with the tent company had migrated inside into the living room. That wasn't really where they were supposed to be. If the collector was feeling paranoid at this point, that was understandable. He had opened his home to a number of people he felt he could trust, and someone had betrayed that trust and taken two very valuable comics. What was worse was that the collector hadn't been in that closet for months, not since September of 1999. The theft could have taken place any time from September to November, which was when he checked the safe again. He had no idea who could have done it. And because he had no idea, Jeff and Anne were about to get some bad news. The collector wanted them to leave. I didn't feel good in my gut anymore to be there. And I think shortly after that, we found our own place and moved out. It wasn't a hostile split. It was as amicable as it could be, given the circumstances. But the collector just didn't know who in the house could have taken the comics. It no longer made sense to have a full-time house-sitting couple there. At best, they hadn't been much of a deterrent when it came to a robbery. By February 2000, with the police failing to generate any leads, the collector's insurance company paid his claim, a total of $245,000 for both comics. And earrings were all but forgotten. Perhaps the only man in the world who could feel the collector's pain was across the country. Nicholas Cage was still in the throes of grief after his copy of Action Number no. 1 had been stolen. After a party. With many suspects. Here's Jamie Newbold. Cage is one of our people. He's one of my people. I understand exactly what he must be thinking or have thought when that happened, how it felt to him. We all do. We are collectors first and then dealers second. We don't go to comic book college and get a BA in comicology. You are a fan from the get-go and you become a lover of this stuff. And then the buying, selling, and trading becomes an act 
where you're playing out the hobby to a much more satisfying degree. Now you're a player. Finally, when you reach my level, it's a uh, living. And when you're robbed of your living, geez, I, yeah, it's miserable. The parallels to the cage crime are uncanny. Anne and Jeff left without knowing who the culprit was. And today, the Westport Police Department has no record of the case being closed, which means the police didn't find the thief or thieves and no charges were ever filed against anyone. Not even Stephen Fischler is quite sure what happened. We tried to find the housekeeper, but there's nary a trace of her anywhere. The driver, Rodney? Unfortunately, he passed away a number of years back, and a relative says they don't know anything about the comics. The contractor, Joe, doesn't know anything either. But here's what we do know. The collector got his comics back. Both of them. Each comic has markings that identified them as being specific copies belonging to their original owners back in 1938 and 1939. Like the D copy of the Marvel Mystery Comics that surfaced after being stolen from Cage's house, the action number one belonged to a pedigreed collection, which had been discovered back in the 1960s. That particular copy of action number one made history when it sold for $1 million in 2010, the first time a comic has ever reached that magical number. The very same copy that had gone missing from the collector's house. His copy of Batman number one sold for even more a few years later, and in a sign of the current state of the hobby, it wound up with a company named Rally. They sell shares of comics, like the stock market. You buy a share of a rare book, and when it's time to resell it, you also share in part of the profit, assuming it appreciates in value. Each share is just $10. In other words, both comics had been returned to him. They had to have been, since he eventually sold them. So we asked the collector, more than once, what happened to his comics? Who had taken them and why? But he didn't respond. Being from the cold case stolen comic division of podcasting didn't seem to make much of an impression on him. Anne and Jeff never spoke with him again either. So, I mean, we haven't even thought about it. We just heard that, like, a couple of years ago, that he was partner or something of a... Could have been a basketball? Did he own... Was an owner of a basketball team or something that... Where a name came up or he was on the TV, and then we talked about it briefly. What happened between the comics disappearing in 2000 and the action number one coming up for sale in 2010? It's possible whoever took the comics decided... The books were too hot to unload. Or maybe the collector let it be known that he'd let the matter drop if the books were returned unharmed. Or maybe if the thief was very crafty, they ransomed the books back to the collector. Whatever it was, it didn't involve the police. So what's the real connection between the theft of the collector's copy of Action Number 1 and Cage's copy? Did the same person do it, weeks apart, on different coasts? No, that doesn't seem likely. But these two cases are connected in a very real way. Talk to a law enforcement official about art crime and you'll hear the same thing again and again. An art heist is often preceded by media coverage of the art in question. 
something to alert the thief that an item within their reach has real value. Just a few weeks before Cage's action number one was stolen, a newspaper, the Norwalk Hour, ran a story about the collector's misfortune. Extra, extra, read all about it. It didn't name him, but it did go on to state that his action number one had been taken and that it was valued at $200,000. That story was then picked up by the Associated Press and the New York Times, which repeated the value of the comic, $200,000. Two thieves across the country likely never met, never knew one another, but one inspired the other. The article was a big flashing neon sign. Come and take me, come and steal Superman. How else is $200,000 ever going to fit inside your jacket? One thief had created a bizarro thief. And in case you are wondering, no, Anne never got her earrings back. No, nobody ever told us or there was never a police report or a conversation, nothing, no. I had told them too about the earrings, but that was minor, there was no investigation on that at all. That was just a little thing on the side, I guess. One action number one had been recovered and the collector could breathe a sigh of relief. But Nicholas Cage was not so fortunate. The case was cold, really cold. It wouldn't heat up again until 2002. That's when his copy of Action Comics number one was spotted in Memphis the home of Nicolas Cage's other favorite hero, and where, apparently, someone was looking to pass off his action number one for the right price. And this time, the police were ready. That's next time on Stealing Superman. Stealing Superman is written by Jake Rawson. Sound design and score by Jonathan Washington. Additional production support by Josh Fisher. Original music by Aaron Kaufman. Mixing and mastering by Bahid Frazier. Research and fact-checking by Jake Rawson and Austin Thompson. With production support from Lulu Phillip. Additional voices by Ruthie Stevens and Ben Bolin. Show logo by Lucy Quintanilla. Our executive producer is Jason English. And I'm your host, Dana Schwartz. If you're enjoying this show, check out Haleywood and Noble Blood, and give us a nice review. We'll see you next week. Stealing Superman is a production of iHeartRadio. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Oh! Gene, run! 
Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.